Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. The elite athlete knows that his or her time in the spotlight and on a national stage will be no more than a small fraction of a lifetime. What has he done to prepare for the rest of his life? Is she ready to meet the challenges that lie ahead once her playing days are over? Two UCLA graduates from different generations and with an insider's knowledge introduce you to some of the greatest athletes of this or any generation as they talk about life after the glory. Lucy Singh is the founder of Resiliency, offering life and resilience coaching to athletes as they leave behind the field of play. Gary Stern is a Southern California consumer attorney and mediator and a veteran of multiple baseball fantasy camps where he was coached by some of the game's elite players who know what real life is all about once their playing days were over. And now, here's Lucy and Gary. Thank you for that intro, Mark. Gary, could you please tell us about our first guests? Well, one of the true legends of baseball starts off our series today. With his wife, Betty, I know you will be inspired, as have Lucy and I, by the great Carl Erskine, one of my true heroes from baseball fantasy camp. Carl was one of the legendary Brooklyn Dodgers Boys of Summer. In a major league career from 1948 to 1959, Carl became beloved in Brooklyn, known to his fans as Oisk. He pitched in five World Series, including Brooklyn's only World Championship in 1955, the year I was born. But more important than all the records was Carl's leadership in welcoming Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers. Carl was a quiet leader during his playing days, and since his retirement in 1959, he has been a shining example of an elite athlete whose positive impact on the lives of others after his playing days may be his lasting legacy. Now, I must say, we are uh, recording this uh, debut podcast uh, in late August of 2020 with all that's going on in the world, and, and with tomorrow being the rescheduled Jackie Robinson Day across Major League Baseball, I can think of no more appropriate guests to kick off this series of podcasts. Uh, at the ripe young age of 93, we welcome Carl Erskine and his bride, Betty, to our debut episode of After the Glory. Carl and Betty, we are so honored to have you with us. And Betty, if I may start with you, in 1947, you and Carl decided to get married. And at that time, Carl was a minor league baseball player with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, you know, I'm just really curious, what did you think of this young ball player as you began your married life? What, what were your plans for your future? I guess I was too young to worry about that too much. We, uh, he asked Carl to go to Cuba. So we set up our wedding date a few months and, and just said goodbye to our family and took off. And he wasn't in a Dodger yet. He was in the minor leagues. Just young and that's the way it was. Carl, were you nervous about starting off uh, uh, your married life and then beginning a family? Not yet sure if baseball was going to be the career for the next decade or so? I'll tell you who, who should have been worried was Betty's dad because she's marrying this kid that plays baseball. He's making two twenty-five a month, and that's only for five months. So uh, his name was Lowell, and I used to kid him. I said, you know, I always liked you, Lowell, but I can't imagine 
you letting your daughter go off with this kid, <laughs> making all that money. But we did go to Cuba. I pitched there, uh, pitched a lot of innings in Havana in that leg, and it helped me a great deal because I developed my curveball uh, better in that uh, off season, that winter season. And when I came back, the coaches were astounded. Where'd you get that curveball? And uh, that helped me get to the big leagues uh, about a half a season later. At that point, Carl, you you had a high school education. You'd spent a year in the Navy, um, and, and from what I gather from Betty, basically it was two young people in their early twenties. Betty was not even yet twenty, and you weren't really thinking too much about the future. Uh, is that kind of the way it was? Well, I think so. When you you know when you're young, the future is every day. You know, you don't think way out very far, and. Uh, we didn't have a big game plan of any kind in our marriage. Uh, we were in love. We'd been in high school together. Uh, I met Betty when she was 14, and I was 15, and uh, uh, we dated all through then. I went in the Navy a couple years, came out, and as you mentioned, uh, in the minor leagues, we, we got married, and uh, Mr. Ricky wanted me to go to uh, Havana, Cuba, and pitch in a winter league, and so that was also our honeymoon. Um, as it turned out. So that was our beginning. Wow, that was incredible. So, Betty, what were your goals at the time? I, my mother worked when I was growing up, and I, I resented that because she wasn't home. She was a great mother, but I thought I wanted to be a mother and a wife, and that was my dream from the time I was a young woman. And, but back in our day, not too many women went to college. So I was one of those, and fortunately, most of the wives, Rachel Robinson had a college education, and I, she might be the only one that had a, an ed, more education than high school at the time we we were playing. So being just what I did, and be a wife and a mother, I hadn't planned on the traveling, but that worked out fine, too. The wives, we became all very good friends, and we played bridge together, and just what I wouldn't normally done here as a wife and a woman that had been to college, except I, and I feel that more now in my later years than I did when I was very young. Betty, thank you for sharing that. I'm so glad you brought up your dreams then, and uh, I'm sure we will come back to Carl's uh, history with baseball. Could you tell me a little more about life away from the baseball field for the both of you, but also specifically for you, Betty, raising your children? Well, I'd just like to interject here. Uh, Betty's always felt like she missed something by not going to college, but she traveled the world around with me in baseball. She got an education well beyond what you normally might get out of the books, and she's been a real trooper, raising kids on the run, uh, living in minor league cities, and finally making it in the big leagues, but... Uh, Betty's been a true baseball wife for a player. Yeah, Carl, one of the things I noticed, and I had not known this from our times together at camp, is that in actuality, from 1948 through 1950, you were up and down. That is, up with the big club and down to cities like Fort Worth and Danville. Did you ever get discouraged at that point and think, well, maybe this isn't going to be a career? Yes, you're right. Well, after I was called up in the middle of the season in 48. Ironically, it's, it's just strange to think about what happened. 
I pulled a muscle in my shoulder my first start in the big leagues. And uh, I actually won two in relief, and then I won three straight complete games. I was 5-0 and oh as a rookie. <laughs> but I pulled a muscle in my shoulder, and that dogged me the rest of my career. But fortunately, I was able to pitch with it and around it, and I pitched after I hurt my shoulder. I pitched 11 seasons after that. But it never went away after I once had that original injury. And uh, my roommate was Duke Snyder for most of my career. And he knows more than anybody else uh, the anxiety I went through uh, trying to be a starting pitcher, a pitch every fourth day. In the end, I have no regrets. There you go. We know that from 1951 to 56 were the the shining years for you. And then, of course, uh, on to 57, the last year in Brooklyn, and, and starting to and make the trip to LA. What I want to do uh, in uh, as we go forward with uh, the theme of our show is when we come back after a short break, I want to talk about what you did in the off season based on those uh, less than stellar salaries. So when we come back after this message, we'll visit Carl Erskine in the off season. Since 1980, Woodland Hills lawyer Gary Stern has been known as a lawyer's lawyer, passionate about his clients and equally passionate about bringing honor, dignity, and respect to the legal profession. Gary Stern represents folks seriously injured because of healthcare negligence, defective and dangerous products and property, neglect in long-term care facilities, and careless operation of cars and trucks. He has successfully resolved hundreds of cases for his clients, providing them with the financial help they needed during trying times. Gary Stern is a member of the prestigious National Trial Lawyers Top 100, active with consumer attorneys of Los Angeles and California, and is admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. And most important, I am proud to call him dad. You can reach Gary Stern at 818 710-2717 or visit his website at www.sternlaw.org Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. The elite athlete knows that his or her time in the spotlight and on a national stage will be no more than a small fraction of a lifetime. Two UCLA graduates from different generations and with an insider's knowledge introduce you to some of the greatest athletes of this or any generation as they talk about life after the glory. And now, here's Lucy and Gary. Welcome back, Carl and, uh, and Betty. And uh, uh, we left off with, uh, uh, when, since we're talking about after the glory, one of the things that's always been curious for me is uh, what you and uh, your colleagues on the team did during the off season? Uh, did did everybody have second jobs? Did you have a second job? What? How did you op- occupy your time, especially financially, during the off season? Oh yeah, we did. Uh, Sports Illustrated, I think, did a piece a couple three years ago, and our stories were all almost identical. Yes, we all worked in the off season. Uh, I had a job in a lumber yard, uh, fifty dollars a week. Uh, roofing houses, uh, framing houses, delivering lumber, <laughs> and it paid for the groceries. Uh, my salaries uh, during my big league career, I can recite them real fast. Uh, I started in 48 at 5000 I went to 6000 the next year, and then seven, and then 10 and then 12 and then 
finally in the mid 50s, 53, I won 20 and lost six and led the league. And in that situation, I was able to get uh, the best contract of my career, which was uh, 30,000. So uh, we did work in the off season. I had paid for the groceries and what little we could save during the season we could kind of tuck away and not not to get into that. So, yeah, that was a typical uh, player off-season in the 50s. Of course, we know that uh, one of the great pieces of trivia is uh, the questions of who pitched the last game at Evans Field and who started out at uh, the Coliseum in Los Angeles after the team moved. When, when the team had decided to move, did the two of you discuss whether to make the move or retire, or were you all in on the trip to L.A.? Well, I I was at the end of my career as uh, the, the team known as the Boys of Summer. We'd already had our best years in Brooklyn, so it was uh, kind of a daunting task to go to a new city and and prove ourselves all over again. Uh, the rookies on those, those teams were like Drysdale and uh, Koufax and Johnny Padres were all three young pitchers, and their best years were ahead of them. So they had a different outlook of the move than than some of the rest of us. And even though I got to start the opening game in Los Angeles, I was really toward the end of my career, and I didn't have much left by that time. I did manage to get the win in that first game. It was kind of a sloppy game, but uh, that was uh, not much of a thrill for me to move to L.A. because I couldn't produce like I used to. In 1959, it's about June, and you've made the decision to retire. What I didn't know is you remained with the team as a field coach. Um, first of all, tell me about retirement and the decision. Was it something you were at peace with? Uh, uh, so many athletes either stay a little bit too long or, or leave before they really wanted to. Um, I think Campanis used to have the phrase about uh, letting a player go uh, a little too soon rather than a little too late is a better thing. What was your thought process in 59? The old-timers used to say uh, to the young guys, uh, who, the young guys said, don't ever take this uniform off me. I'll be able to rip it off. And the old-timers would quietly say, look, son, when the day comes that you're supposed to take it off, believe me, you'll know it and you'll take it off. That's exactly what happened to me. I would have paid to play baseball, uh, although we didn't get paid much. Uh, but I said, oh, they'll never take this uniform off. But in the middle of 59 season, I wasn't productive. I'd always been a starting pitcher most of my career. Uh, I was having real frustrations myself, and I finally uh, pitched a bad game in Pittsburgh. And I told Walt Austin, you, you won't ever have to come and pick me off the mound anymore. <laughs> but I did say on as a coach, uh, the Dodgers said to me, uh, general manager was Buzzy Vivesi, when I told him I was going to retire voluntarily, he said, well, Carl, we're not going to release you. We're going to make you a coach, and you can work out the rest of your contract the balance of the season. And that's what I did. The team went on to win a World Series that year, and so I got a share of the World Series, uh, and then I called everybody goodbye at the victory party, and that was the end of my baseball days. And you were 33 years old at the time, right? 32, yeah. 32. Yeah, was, yeah, you're I it's the main thing uh, that happens. You come into the leg green and uh, and you don't know up from down, but you got good stuff and you can pitch uh, your way through and finally become a, a good starting pitcher. But uh, at the end of your career, you know the most, 
you've got the best feel for the leg, you know the hitters, you're the smartest you've ever been, but you can't, you don't physically have the stuff to stay there. So that's kind of an irony in baseball. Carl, thank you for sharing about your retirement. Now, I really like to ask Betty, what did Carl's retirement mean to you? Going back home. <laughs> I had joined him in Pittsburgh to travel on to L.A. with the team, and he retired at that time. We spent the rest of this of this school term there, and the children finished the year in school in L.A., they, the, boy, the little the boys were probably seven and nine, and our little girl was only three. And um, the boys played baseball on little league teams. And then when we came home, I was happy to be around my family. And as irony, uh, I was pregnant. And then my mother also had a little, and father had a little girl the same age as our second son. So it was it was happiness for me to go back to Anderson, Indiana. All through the years of, of Major League Ball, you travel a lot. What about living? Did, did you buy a home anywhere? Did you rent? Um, t- tell us a little about living in Brooklyn. Um, in, in the off-season, did you come home to Anderson every year? We did. And as Colin mentioned earlier, he worked, and I took care of the children. And, and I was a chaperone. I was one of the mothers at home and took a carload of little boys to the ball games every <laughs> every week. And no, we did not buy a home in, in Brooklyn or L.A. We rented it from the same lady several years in a row home. And that we became good friends there. Had a nice babysitter right in the same area where we were. So it was a good life for me. Almost every player in the major leagues in the 50s were high school graduates. The other fact of life was we were all on one-year contracts, even the managers. In the 50s, uh, it finally began to change, but you would never buy a home where you played and have a 30-year mortgage on a one-year contract. So that's one of the reasons players all went back to their hometowns in the off-season. Uh, and uh, only a rare occasion like Gil Hodges who married a girl from Brooklyn then he stayed in Brooklyn but uh, that was an unusual circumstance so that's why we didn't buy a house where we live because uh, we were on one year contract Thank you so much for sharing about that After this break we'll continue the conversation about life after the glory specifically what Betty had mentioned the growth and challenges experienced in the Erskine's personal and home line Thinking about a new or used car? Think Infinity of Thousand Oaks. We've been serving Thousand Oaks in Southern California for years. We have new, used, and certified pre-owned Infinity vehicles available now with many special offers. There's something for everyone. Infinity of Thousand Oaks is your home for the best deals on Infinity cars. With the COVID pandemic, we offer contactless sales. Call our sales office at 805-262-7442. 
or visit infinityofthousandoaks.com. Pick out a vehicle and we'll deliver it to your home or office with all the paperwork done with the power of the internet. Our award-winning sales and service team is waiting to give you the best service in buying a vehicle you've ever had. Call us today at 805-262-7442 and make an appointment for your new 2020 Infinity or visit our website at infinityofthousandoaks.com. Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. And now, here's Lucy and Gary. Welcome back, Betty and Carl. So we were just talking about 1960 and how your life's drastically changed after the glory. Can you tell me more about that? Our son Jimmy was born April the 1st, 1960, and he's Down syndrome. I'm like, God. But anyway, it made a big change. We talked to our other children, and they understood. And they, the doc, we called our New York doctor, and he was very encouraging to us. And said the local doctor wanted us to place Jimmy, and I said, no, I can take care of him better than anyone else right now. So we kept Jimmy until he was 57, 58 years old in our home, and he's been a blessing to anyone that met him, brought us a lot of joy. He has his unconditional love to raise a Down syndrome child, and I'll tell you some of the exciting things. He won medals in Special Olympics, he had swimming and, and all of that. He worked for Applebee's locally for 20 years. He had a retirement party, and he just turned 60 years old. I'm convinced that after you told me off the air that this is your very first interview on any kind of a radio, internet radio, or anything else, it's astounding because uh, I don't think Carl would disagree that your success and the contributions to the world were made jointly, not just by Carl. Carl, let me ask you about, can you tell our listeners what Down syndrome is, what are the challenges involved, and, and maybe more succinctly, what were other people saying that, that mirrored some of the intolerance of the time? Yeah, you're right. Well, the culture of our day uh, back in the 1960 and earlier the condition Jimmy was born with was not called Down syndrome. It had an ugly, a very harsh uh, medical name of mongoloid. A mongolism was a call. Uh, oh, it was a harsh term. Uh, it was a time when families uh, withdrew from the mainstream because uh, there was no schools and there were no services, and even there was a stigma in the life for a family with a child of mongoloid condition. It was a scary time for families. And when Jimmy came into our life, uh, we got the shock of our marriage because we thought maybe we had done something wrong or uh, in some way had caused uh, this. Well, that was not true at all. Uh, then when Jimmy came to our, uh, Betty, number one, said to the doctors when they suggested being institutionalized, uh, and the, the phrase was, and it won't disrupt your family. That That's a, a good sign of what the culture was like. Uh, there's no place for you out here, so why don't you just stash this little boy and he'll be taken care of. Well, uh, Betty's a fighter. She said, no way. He goes home with us, and he's going to be a part of our family. 
if things don't work out, we'll maybe take a change of heart. But no, he's our little boy. He's going home. I went home that day and set my three kids down, Danny, Gary, and Susie. They were like uh, 10, 8, and 3 or 4. Uh, and I told them about their little brother is coming. He's a special kid. Uh, he's not going to swim fast or ride a bike quick. Uh, you're going to have to help him. Well, I made a lot of speeches in my life. That was the best one I ever made because <laughs> my kids, when Jimmy came into their lives, they treated him like any kid brother. They tossed him around, played fun, played with him, brought their friends home. There was no shame or embarrassment of anything. And uh, that really set the stage for what eventually, through the evolution of uh, all the things to happen to come with uh, children who born with some defect, uh, or even our neighbor kids uh, influenced by our kids, to accept Jimmy and the neighbors the same way. So my kids did a fantastic job. And to this day, they know that the best thing in life uh, that they learned so much from was having Jimmy and, and caring for him and seeing him accomplish things that no one ever guessed could happen. Our, our granddaughter went to Jimmy's home where he lives now took him all of his favorite things, sticks, and Jimmy doesn't talk very much, sticks and crayons and the things that he loves, and she said he loved her, loved her, loved her. So he has passed on unconditional love to every person in the family and everyone that ever met him. He's been a blessing. He's been my life, as you can tell. But I played bridge, I played golf, I modeled some. I I got out of the house, and Carl and I played bridge together. So I had the life outside of Jimmy, but he was pretty, my children were pretty much it. I love it. Somebody passed me a box of tissues. She's smiling <laughs> because uh, Betty's covered it pretty much, but I did fantasy camps. I did 46 fantasy camps. And I took Jimmy and Betty with me to 45 of the camps. They missed the first one. Uh, Jimmy made friends with uh, doctors, uh, attorneys, uh, business uh, guys that own big businesses, and so on. Uh, they all got to know Jimmy, and uh, he had a, a uniform, the Dodger uniform. Uh, he used to run the bases, and uh, they'd wait for him, and he'd slide at home plate. They'd all give him high fives. Jimmy has had a, a wonderful life. I was so inspired about Jimmy. I played nine seasons with Jackie Robinson, and I saw him make such a huge impact on our culture and how people finally said, why would we deny such a superstar as this to play in a, our pastime, national pastime? And so Jackie changed the hearts and minds of so many people. And then lo and behold, after I got out of baseball, Jimmy was born, and we've raised Jimmy. Uh, I saw a parallel between Jackie and the influence he had for his race, and I saw how Jimmy, representing the population that he did, there was such a parallel of how society had rejection, how society made a turnaround. And so uh, that little book is not for sale. You just make a donation to Space Olympics in India, and they'll send you a copy. It was an amazing thing to see uh, have that experience of both uh, those 
cultural changes that Jackie made. Jimmy is only a representative of a bigger population, but in a sense, there's a real parallel. Carl and Betty, as we go to our break, um, I want to emphasize that it's a 2005 book that Carl wrote called What I Learned from Jackie Robinson. You can get it on Amazon, but if you uh, email um, our podcast and there will be uh, ways for you to get to us, we can uh, uh, show you how to get that uh, book uh, with a donation to Special Olympics. I wish we had more time. Of course, Jimmy became a standout in Special Olympics. Um, and Carl, you alluded to the uh, camps and Jimmy running the bases. When we come back from the break, I want you to set that up a little more about the, the, the highlight of the week at camp was a camper versus instructor game. And at the end of that game, everybody lined up on both lines. And, and I want you to take it from there when we come back with Carl and Betty Erskine. Hello, this is Dean, third generation owner of Sarah Leonard Fine Jewelers. We are located near UCLA in the heart of Westwood Village, where we have been since 1946. For 74 years, my family has stood for the highest standards of knowledge and integrity and are proud members of the prestigious American Gem Society. But it is our personal touch that truly makes us a cut above. Client relationships last for decades and generations. With six UCLA alumni, the family has supported UCLA for decades, including the famous Sarah Leonard Jewelers Watch Giveaway. For diamonds and colored gems, designer collections and estate jewelry, watches, custom design, and gorgeous gifts starting under $100, it's all here at Sarah Leonard Fine Jewelers. Mention the code GLORY and get 20% off your first purchase, plus a 10% UCLA discount on all future purchases. Call 310-208-3131 today for your appointment or visit us at sarahleonardjewelers.com. Free parking available. Again, call 310-208-3131, use the code GLORY and experience the Sarah Leonard difference for yourself. Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. The elite athlete knows that his or her time in the spotlight and on a national stage will be no more than a small fraction of a lifetime. Two UCLA graduates from different generations and with an insider's knowledge introduce you to some of the greatest athletes of this or any generation as they talk about life after the glory. And now, here's Lucy and Gary. We're back, uh, uh, and, and we're with Carl and Betty Erskine. We have a little something, Carl, for you that uh, just a little bit of a hobby that you have that turned into something quite special, your uh, harmonica and back home in Indiana. Well, we're going to do a couple of quick numbers uh, to kind of kick things off. Um, the first one is my favorite song about, it's, it's sort of like what I call another national anthem. It is. Yeah, to me, from where I came from. Betty, uh, 
in the midst of all of the changes in your life with the birth of Jimmy, Carl, you wrote something in one of your books where you were very cognizant of the transition of an athlete to private life. Uh, and my first question, it's two-parter because I know that you did something a lot of athletes in those days did. You went back to college. But I want to ask you, as you left the field, can you compare the first few years in terms of missing the cheering, missing the feeling of being on the mound at Yankee Stadium during a World Series? Did that feeling ever go away? Did it dissipate? How did you adjust to the emotional part, the, the thrills of being in the public eye and on a baseball field in the years that followed? I'll tell you, I'm going to surprise you with my answer. When I got out of baseball, I knew that the end had come. My career was over. All the numbers were in the book. You could look them up. But when I went back to my hometown and had to find a way to make a living, I checked out uh, various places. And uh, what I wanted to do was not talk to anybody about my baseball career. I wanted to find my way in the, the culture of the times and in the real life finding a productive way to make a living and not ever lean on the baseball career. That was done behind me. Uh, I wanted to prove that I could make it without all the baseball uh, behind me. And I was really sensitive about that. And so I did go back to college, and it was a humbling experience. I was 32 years old, but my hair had already started to turn gray. And when I walked in the first class, a 7 o'clock class at a.m. at Anderson University, uh, the first morning, when I walked in the room, it got real quiet. Uh, the kids already there thought I was a professor. <laughs> I had to go out of the room and go down to the hall into the back row and sit down. So it was a little humbling experience. But I did go back to college, took some accounting, uh, took some uh, English uh, classes um, and uh, some things I could apply. Uh, I wasn't looking for a degree so much as just to get my head on straight. And then uh, I went on from there to uh, into insurance, eventually into banking. And in the insurance business, I know one, in one of the books, uh, I think in the Tales book, you talk about having a tough time with sales and somebody took you aside and you learned something about sales that led to your becoming one of the top producers for your company. Always a little bit shy, and you have to be persistent uh, in sales because you have to make a lot of calls to make a few sales. And so I had to learn that. I had to learn the uh, discipline of uh, the numbers count. You make you, you make ten calls. You do better if you make twenty calls. So I had uh, a couple of years. It was a little stressful for me. Uh, I knew a lot of people, and then I also learned that. Some people wouldn't make an appointment with me because they didn't want to tell me no. <laughs> so uh, in church was a different uh, experience, but I learned to be more professional at it rather than just selling a policy here and there. And so I got to be a good producer finally and, and really kind of enjoyed the uh, career in the insurance. And that led me to be on a bank board, and uh, from the bank board I was uh, probably inside as an officer of the bank, and then I stayed for many years as a, 
an officer in a bank. You know, I know that throughout the rest of your uh, adult life, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, the work in insurance, bank, um, and of course, coaching. You coach for your lo- local college, uh, had some championship baseball teams. But the name Jackie Robinson took on incredible meaning as we went through the 60s and the 70s. And I want you to talk to us a little bit about what Jackie meant to you, how he informed your own life, and especially in these later years when you are really one of the last, if not the last, player who was part of Jackie's entire major league career from 47 to 56. Can you talk a little about Jackie as we head into the big Jackie Robinson Day rescheduled day tomorrow? Uh, I think our listeners would be interested in your perspective. Well, you know, in life, the play when you get to be my age at ninety, almost ninety-four, you can you got a long look back over, over your lifetime of how things and small uh, small things that have happened that have turned out to have big outcomes, uh, and that was one of them. I was a minor leaguer in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, in my second season in pro baseball. And I pitched against the big club, the real Brooklyn Dodgers, in spring uh, before the season opened. And I pitched uh, five innings, I think, in that game. And after the game was over, Robinson, who I did not know, Jackie, at all, uh, he came across the field, our dugout, and looked, asked for me by name. And I stepped out of the dugout and shook hands with Jackie. And he said to me, young man, I hit against you twice today. You're not going to be in this league very long. Now, Jackie didn't have to do that. Uh, he'd been rookie the year the year before, but in his second season, that's the toughest season because you got to prove again that the first season wasn't just a fluke, that you really made it, you really did it right. And a lot of guys have trouble in that second season. But Jackie, in spite of that, he came over and talked to this kid he didn't know and encouraged me, as it turned out to be me, uh, to encourage me immensely to have him speak to me and and say your stuff is so good you can't stay here very long. He was right. By the mid season, I'd won 15 in uh, Fort Worth, and they called me to the Dodgers. And when I went into my uh, found my locker, uh, was putting my stuff away, the team bus came, and Jackie got off the bus. He came straight to my locker, and he shook my hand again. And he said, Carl, I told you, you couldn't miss. Well, what a beginning of a friendship and a a teammate. I played nine seasons with Jackie, and I could tell you dozens of stories about uh, the courage he had and the discipline that he had. He also saved uh, my second hitter was against the Giants, and uh, he made a play against Willie Mays, who hit a shot off of me. And Jackie at third base went to his left real quick. He was quick as a cat and he, he speared that ball and made turn it into an easy out so i have lots of personal ties with jackie they're not for broadcast they're feelings i have that i'll always have of, of a man who faced such a challenge and i also was signed by mr ricky so i knew mr ricky and i knew jackie and so i had this mix of these two brilliant uh, uh, performers mr ricky and his uh, brave attempt and Jackie who promised Mr. Ricky he could play his heart out and he could and he would avoid ever fighting at all and he did that and that was the combination that made uh, 
Jackie's successful. Carl, we're going to uh, go to break, and I think we're going to extend one more segment because there's just so much that I think we want to still ask you. As we get ready to break, I want to come back and quickly fill in the gap about uh, Jimmy and the uh, fantasy camp. Ladies and gentlemen, Carl would throw an underhand pitch to Jimmy at the end of this long day of baseball. Jimmy would hit the ball. He would go around the bases. And let me tell you, doctors, lawyers, millionaires, actors, there was not a dry eye on the third baseline or the first baseline, and it never was different in all the camps I went to and for all the campers. Uh, It was an amazing moment that none of us expected. We'll go to break. We'll come back, talk a little more about Jackie Robinson when we come back from this message. Life Coaching for Athletes is here to help. Coach Lucy is a certified life coach focused on working with athlete-minded people in finding and pursuing success in life outside of sports. She serves as an accountability partner and offers different perspectives when her clients are facing big challenges and decisions. Follow Resiliency on Instagram at Resiliency, that's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching for more information. As a co-host of After the Glory, Coach Lucy is excited to share her expertise in working with athletes and looks forward to connecting with all you listeners to learn more of your stories as well. Welcome to After the Glory on Podclips. And now, here's Lucy and Gary. Uh, We're back with Carl and Betty Erskine, straight from Anderson, Indiana. Uh, Carl, uh, off the air, we were talking a little bit about the process of developing a meaningful and purposeful life after uh, the glory is over. And part of that is the baseball wife. Talk a little about Betty and what she has meant to you uh, throughout your career. Well, Betty's always been there because we met in high school and uh, I was a prospect in high school and the scouts came. So I had to go in the Navy for a couple of years and then I came out and went to the minors. And Betty was right there. Uh, I played at Danville, Illinois. It's 110 miles from Henderson. So Betty and her family used to drive over, my mom and dad, to watch me pitch. So she's been there from the day one. What Betty has been uh, is, I've always told her this, all the headlines, the rings, and the rest of, the, of all the hype that you get in baseball, if you're successful at all, uh, it doesn't mean anything unless I can come home and have a family and someone like Betty uh, in my life. That takes priority. So she's been right there all the time. I wanted to say that I was pitching Saturday afternoon in uh, May of 1956 against the Giants at Ebbets Field. Uh, the Giant rivalry was so t- uh, tense in uh, New York in those days. So you, your manhood was on the line when you're playing against the Giants. It didn't make any difference what the standings were. So I was having arm trouble when I left uh, that day. Betty knew that I was anxious about how I was going to be able to throw that day. So uh, I go to the ballpark and uh, get dressed. I go out, take my warm-ups, and start the game. Uh, at the same time, Betty is home with my two little boys in Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And she sets the ironing board up in front of TV so she can watch the game while she's ironing. And so uh, the game starts. Now, I knew nothing about this till later. But I'm pitching uh, against the Giants. I'm getting them out, and, and Jackie makes a great play to save a base hit uh, off of Willie Mays. And uh, we go through, and finally, uh, I get the last out, and it was a no-hitter against the Giants. But what was happening with Betty? She was ironing a tablecloth, and uh, I was doing so well that she she hated to stop 
ironing the tablecloth. So she ironed it for about five innings and finally turned it over. She ironed it for nine innings. She didn't scorch her spot, and I didn't allow a hit. That's real teamwork. <laughs> I love it. Um, you mentioned again, uh, Jackie, and I want to close our conversation today with, uh, with Jackie. After his death in 1971, uh, and up until today, and all of the significance of the establishment of Jackie Robinson Day, we know, of course, that Rachel Godlover is 98 years old uh, and still uh, doing well. Carl, you, you hold a unique place in our American history right now with your connection with Jackie. Um, and, and there are two parts to what I want to ask you. You were not one of the players whose prejudices got in the way. Pre- players like Dixie Walker, who were the traded away eventually. What was it in your makeup and your background that allowed you to treat him like everybody else and to this day speak in such reverential terms about his character and what he meant to both baseball and to, and to civil rights generally? I believe I have a faith life. I believe uh, in, in a faith uh, winding through everything you do. But in our kid growing up in Anderson, Indiana, I walked to school, uh, elementary school, uh, with a black kid. His name was Johnny Wilson. And Johnny Wilson and I were probably 10 years old. Uh, I lived in a mixed neighborhood, so I knew a lot of black families. Uh, and we were all poor because it was the Depression years. But Johnny Wilson and I... I played on the basketball team in elementary school. Then we went to middle school. We played. We played in high school together. Johnny was a fantastic basketball player. In fact, when he graduated uh, from Anderson University, Anderson College at that time, he played with the Globetrotters. Uh, then he played in the Negro League, uh, Chicago American Giants. Giants a great athlete, but it was just like a plan that was in place for me to live in a neighborhood and have a friend, a close, close friend like Johnny Wilson, uh, starting at age 10 and for the rest of my life. But when I went to the Dodgers, Jackie Robinson, I didn't know he was black. I mean, I never had an in, in kind of instinct of any kind. Uh, Johnny Wilson was a close friend, and it just led me right into the relationship with Jackie. And so even Jackie was surprised because he said to me one day, Carl, you don't seem to have any problem at all with this race thing. And I said, absolutely not. I don't I don't even know it exists. And that's because Johnny and I were close friends. We played together. We honored each other. We, we actually ate at each other's house uh, on, on occasion. He ate at my house a lot. <laughs> that was a free experience that I think was almost like planned in my life to be ready for the Jackie experience. And, of course, I had no problem at all. I admired Jackie a lot. And uh, when I wrote a book, uh, McGraw-Hill, the publisher, called me. Say we'd like to have a, this is maybe ten years ago. Uh, we'd like to have a book about Jackie, and I said there's a lot of books about Jackie. No teammate has ever written uh, about Jackie. So they said uh, here's a title, uh, and I said I don't like that title. They said well, well what, what kind of title would you like? I said, I learned too much from Jackie uh, to have a title that uh, maybe makes me equal to him. So they said, well, how about the the title of what I learned from Jackie Robinson? I said, I, I like that. So that's how the title happened, because I did learn so much from Jackie's patience, 
his self-control, his intensity in the face of such pressure. So I admire Jackie. Yes, he could play. But he could play anything. Uh, you never wanted to play ping pong with Jackie or golf. You just wouldn't do it. You would. You knew right away you weren't going to be Jackie Robinson. So he was this fantastic well, athlete. Part of his life was part of Johnny Wilson's uh, experience. It's an incredible story. Carl, we're running out of time. Um, I'll just, before I turn it over to Lucy, I just want to say to you and to Betty, thank you. Not just for today, uh, not just for all the camps, but for everything that you've meant to people who you would not know and you'll never know. And with that, let me turn it over to Lucy to close out our segment. Carl and Betty, as you both know, I am a life coach for athletes. I work with athlete-minded people in helping them find and pursue passions and you know, success in life outside of sports. So let me close by asking you this, both of you, what has baseball taught you in terms of transferable skills that you use in daily life today? Competition. You know, I knew what competition was like on the baseball field. <laughs> when I got out of baseball, I had to learn what competition was in the real world. And that was a big change for me. And uh, I always saw the enemy with uh, the name on the front of his shirt. But <laughs> you don't know who your competition is sometimes. It, uh, so I had a lot to learn about uh, sales. But it was a great teaching time for me to, to learn how to interact with people. And uh, I was in the insurance business before I went into banking. But uh, all this time, uh, my kids were growing up, and Betty was, she was the master of the house and uh, taking care of all the things that had to be done. And I know she was just a loyal supporter, and I went from insurance to banking. I coached in between. Uh, I spent a lot of time away from home, but she kept the camp and, uh, raised the kids, uh, and they all turned out really well. We made it home wherever we were. That's what I learned with all of our traveling and different homes and not. And that is a wonderful way to close, making a home wherever you are. Lucy? Thank you, Carl and Betty, so much for being with us today. We are so grateful to have you as our first guests in our After the Glory podcast. We look forward to sharing many more stories and staying in touch. Take care.